Welcome to the Don Smith Show, where it's okay to be a conservative. And now here's your host, Don Smith. Hey, thank you, Brad Smith, for that great introduction. And thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in today for another Don Smith Show. Damn right, it's okay to be a conservative. Great lineup here on the program. We've got Victor Davis Hanson, Sean Spicer, and from peoplespunditdaily.com, Mr. Richard Barris. We're going to make the case here today, and uh, Victor Davis Hanson has a book out actually called The Case for Trump. But we're going to try to explain how we got to this point. I mean, what has happened to create the level of hatred and anger and uh, insanity that we're seeing on a daily basis on the left? We'll try to explain that here in today's program. A lot of news to cover here this week, of course, deal with Mexico, uh, which is apparently a really, really bad thing now. So, uh, again, kind of plays into what we're talking about. We're going to talk a little bit more about what we talked about last week collectivism versus individualism. We've got some great examples of that as well. A lot of news to cover, three great interviews. Hey, folks, you know what time it is. Well, it's Ladies time to rumble. And gentlemen, <laughs> oh. uh, let's get ready to rumble! All right, a little, a little bit of a delay there, but hey, we're going to move forward anyway. Great interviews here today. Glad to have you all here. And uh, as we watch what's played out here this week, just incredible stuff. I mean, uh, amazing the level of san- insanity that's going on out there. And if you haven't heard this, a uh, woman stabbed herself uh, the other day here in Florida because, you know, Trump. So, yeah, no problems there, no issues. Um, we have a huge mental health crisis in this country. And uh, I guess one thing you got to say, uh, President Trump really highlights that he brings it out and um, people have exposed themselves for their own insanity. And we see that even in Washington, D.C. So a lot of stuff going on here this week. Uh, the, I think one of the big things here is the deal with, that we just made here. You know, here's the thing. This is what makes Donald Trump a different kind of president. This is a guy who will do what needs to be done. He doesn't care if it uh, moves his poll numbers this way or that way. He talks a lot about poll numbers, no doubt about that. Um, Very obviously, very interested, wants to have great poll numbers, and he wants everything to be great. I think that's one of the things about him. But he doesn't make decisions based on that. And this is is perplexing to people like Nancy Pelosi, who these are people who are used to, they understand when people say, okay, for example, if, if there's a bill up, and this, this goes for both sides of the aisle, if there's a bill up and they know they need X number of votes, I mean, they literally sit down and say, okay, hey, look, I know you would have voted for it, but your district and votes and all that, so why don't you sit this one out and or and just vote present, and we've got enough votes here to cover. So they actually sit and figure out who needs to be left out of the vote, right, So to, to protect themselves. But this week, we really saw something that I think is going to, obviously, it's not only going to continue, but it's going to ramp up. And I'm talking, of course, of Joe Biden, who right now is the presumptive uh, nominee, let's face it. I mean, everybody's always the front runner. He's, he's in the same position that Hillary Clinton was in, 
right, at this time in the 2016 election cycle. So here you've got a guy for his entire life has supported a position. This is a position he believes. It's, it's the very foundation of who he is. He, they always say that the, the people, some like a Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, people like this who've spent their entire life in politics. Again, this is why Trump is different. He doesn't have this. But anyway, they have what they call a signature issue, right? This is my issue. And so one thing that Joe Biden has always done very successfully is he's always skirted that because he's, he's Catholic, but he's always skirted the abortion issue, right? Because he says, well, I'm pro-life, but I support pro-choice people. So for me, I'm going to live my life as a pro-life person, but I'm not going to bother anybody else, which really kind of isn't the position. But he's gotten away with it because it, it kind of appeases both sides. Everybody kind of goes, well, okay, I guess he's with me. And the other side says, well, I guess he's with me. So it, it's actually a pretty brilliant political strategy because – Abortion can be such a divisive issue, and we're seeing that today, of course, with the things that are going on in Georgia and Alabama and and other states, Missouri. So here you've got Joe Biden, who his signature issue is his support for the Hyde Act. So federal money can't – he doesn't believe that federal money should be uh, allowed to be used to fund abortions, right? Well, see, the party left Joe a long time ago, and Joe is just now starting to figure this out. But here's the thing. He was going to be the moderate, right? He was the moderate. He was the guy who was going to stand out. We talked last week, collectivism versus individualism. You have to be collective, a collective person if you're going to be a Democrat, especially if you're going to run for president. You need to buy into all these things. Now, for, unfortunately for many of them, all these things are things that middle America won't buy into. And this had, this had something to do with uh, Hillary Clinton losing the, uh, the 2016 election because middle America went – it was in New York and California and Oregon and Seattle, and they love it. They're like, yeah, yeah, these, these are great things. Middle America, not so much. Middle America is not so enthralled with socialism, with shutting down power plants. You've got Michael Bloomberg who's, who's committing – a half a billion dollars of his own money, he can do whatever he wants with it, don't get me wrong, of his own money to shut down an entire industry. He wants to shut down the coal industry and also the natural gas industry. um, Okay. See, that's not going to play in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. It's not going to play there. West Virginia. Remember the Hillary Clinton moment, right, where she she literally told someone that she was going to put him out of work. It could have been put so much more eloquently, but that's Hillary Clinton. I mean, she just doesn't do that. So here you've got Biden now, and he gets asked in this. Well, as soon as he gets out, the rest of them are ready to pounce. Because, of course, they want federal money used to, uh, to fund abortions. Of course they do. But listen to this, because I think this is absolutely fascinating. Now, if you know the story here, so Joe Biden comes out and he says, well, hey, you know, I still – I don't think I want – federal money used to fund abortions, and he gets a call from an actress, Alyssa Milano. She calls the campaign. First of all, really? She has the number to direct dial, right? So, so Uncle Joe's on speed dial, apparently, for, uh, for the Hollywood folks. Tells him he's got to change his position. So Joe Biden, being fearless, as he always has been, right? He is the guy who was going to take President Trump out behind the woodshed, right? He's so fearless. He, he couldn't get to a microphone fast enough. 
to switch a position that he's held for over 30 years. This is the guy. This is the guy who's going to stand up to President Trump. Wait till he gets on the debate stage and, and the other candidates start throwing stuff at him and he's got you are going to see a flip-flop like you've never seen before in real time. It's going to happen. He's going to say something. One of them's going to pounce on him. He's going to go, oh, I didn't mean that. I meant the opposite of that. Uh, let me be clear. It's unbelievable. So here he is. He comes out and he does this thing. Well, then he gets a call from uh, Alyssa Milano, you know, who's such a huge, important figure in our political world today. Apparently she is. She calls Joe Biden. He runs to a microphone. And he says, oh, my goodness, everything I've ever believed my entire life, I just found out now that I'm wrong. Oh, my goodness, I am so very wrong. So he comes out a lifetime, over 30 years. He has believed the opposite. He's believed the opposite of what his position is today. It's, I, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, this is unbelievable that a Hollywood actress could call up a candidate and make him complete. So here's what he had to say as soon as he got to the microphone. Uh, he just couldn't wait to say this. You know, he's got to please Alyssa Milano. Check this out. For many years as U.S. Senator, I have uh, I've supported the Hyde Amendment like many, many others have. But circumstances have changed. And uh, I've been struggling with the problems that Hyde now presents. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. Circumstances have changed. No, no, the only thing that changed was Alyssa Milano called him. And he went, oh my God, Alyssa Milano's angry at me. She's got a lot of followers on Twitter. This could be horrible for me. Nothing's changed. What, ask yourself this. What has changed? What circumstance has changed with abortion? There's, there's no, no change of circumstance. It's a phone call from an actress in Hollywood who apparently now runs the Democrat Party. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, the reason they did this, and this is, what, this is where you want to make sure, just like me, I got my popcorn. You want to have a full supply of popcorn. Because this is going to be awesome to watch this debate process, to watch what these people are going to do, because he's the guy, right? He's the one that they're all gunning for. They all have to beat Joe. It's not Bernie. It's not Hillary. It's Uncle Joe Biden. Listen to this. Is, these are the 2020 Dems. Listen to what they have to say as soon as they heard Joe Biden came out and put support on this. But listen to this. I will repeal the Hyde Amendment. It's the amendment in law that makes it impossible for low-income women to access the care they need. The Hyde Amendment is a direct assault to black and brown communities like the one I've been representing. If you visit our website, uh, you'll see our commitment to repealing the Hyde Amendment. As president, I will make sure that we repeal the Hyde Amendment. I don't support the Hyde Amendment, and I will leave the fight to have it overturned. Do you notice something about Elizabeth Warren? Because Elizabeth Warren, she's always going to lead the fight, right? She, she doesn't participate in fights. She's always got to lead it. She, she's AOC. She's the boss. Here's the problem. You've got Elizabeth Warren, who's the boss. You've got AOC, who's the boss. And now, apparently, we have Alyssa Milano, who is the boss. Next week, it'll be Cher. Then it'll be Beth Midler. Then it'll be Robert De Niro. Then it'll... 
you get you get the theme here. But listen to what they said, because what they just told us was these people just told us that not having federal money to fund abortion hurts minority communities. Right? It it, it actually prevents them from having access to abortions. Folks, do you know anything about a little, a little organization called Planned Parenthood? Have you ever noticed, hmm, let's see, were they strategically located in these facilities? Yeah, I think you have. And I think you'll notice that no poor, pe- no poor person, no person of color, has any problem finding a Planned Parenthood. They're not putting them in Beverly Hills, right? They're not putting them in affluent neighborhoods. They are putting them in the hearts of the poorest, the blackest, the brownest communities in America. Not an accident. If you know anything at all about Margaret Sanger, you know exactly why they did this. Where where are the leaders? Uh, Where is somebody like an Al Sharpton to come out and say, hey, folks, do you get what's going on here? Because I think the rest of us kind of do. But we were just told by the 2020 Democrats. We were also told by Joe Biden now, before not so much. <laughs> I, I watched The Five yesterday. Juan Williams was going, well, he evolved on the, in an hour. The guy evolved in an hour from a phone call from Hollywood. That, that's who we want? Facing off against world leaders? You think Joe Biden would have gotten any kind of deal with Mexico? No, he wouldn't have, because he was there for eight years. Barack Obama didn't get a deal. George Bush didn't get a deal. Even Ronald Reagan didn't get a deal. This is the first president who's been able to actually get a deal. Why? Because, he, because he's him. He's not, it's not a political thing. It's not a game for him. He really wants to solve the issue. Wow, what an amazing concept. But we've been told now that, that black and brown people have no access. They can't even get abortions. Yes, they can. Folks, do you know what the, what the breakdown is? When, when you look at abortions by race, do you have any idea what it is? Because, again, we were just told that black and brown people don't get abortions. Because they can't. They can't afford it. They can't find a facility. There, and this is going oh, to make it even worse. No, no, no. See, it would increase it. Right? Because if we start pumping federal money into these organizations, which fund, which we already do on a certain extent. But this is full blown. This is like, okay, let's give a trillion dollars now to, to plan for Because we've got to build those drive throughs, you know? We've got to have those. Abortion statistics by race are this 34% of the abortions in this country, over 600,000 a year, over 600,000. Remember the Democrats where we want it to be rare and we want it to be 600,000. Look at them post their, their statistics on gun violence. Oh, uh, 12 people will die. 600,000 every year. 34% of them are white. You know what? That means the rest of them aren't white. So the people that apparently have no access, right? They, they just don't even have access to it. That's so sad. 66% of abortions are black and brown people. The ones that can't have to, to slide or I, well, there's no, where do I go? I can't afford it. I don't have any money. So they want to increase this. 
where are the leaders of these communities saying, um, no, no, we're good. Uh, yeah, enough, enough's going on here. Yeah, we don't need any more help. Thanks. 600,000 a year. We need, I guess, 6 million a year. I don't know. 6 billion. What do we need? What's, what's the number they're looking for? This is, this is the conversation we're having. This is, we've got, we've got a governor, governor of Virginia who talks about keeping the baby, we'll keep the child comfortable and, until a decision is, until a decision is made. A child has been born. We'll keep it comfortable until we make the decision. What decision? What decision? And they're saying, well, that's not in fantasy. What the hell is it then? I think it is. I think it's the very definition of it. But these are people that want to increase these numbers. Where are the leaders of these communities going, hey, no, no, we're, we're, okay. we're okay. 34% of them are by white people, which is, okay, you know, you know the demographics of the country, right? It's not a conspiracy that there's more white people. It wasn't, somebody didn't sit down one day and say, okay, here's how we keep the, it, it just is, right? It just is. There's just more white people. Not a conspiracy. Nobody sat down and planned it. It just is what it is. But they want to increase these in the poor community. You can't walk to the store in the poorest communities in this country. You can't walk down to the end of to the corner of the block that you live on without passing a Planned Parenthood facility. It's not a mistake they're there. They didn't go, well, I guess we don't have anywhere else to build it, so let's put this one in the ghetto too. No. Listen to Margaret Sanger. She was very clear. She didn't pull any punches. She didn't do political speak. She told you exactly what she was going to do. And she would be pleased with these statistics. But we're told, you know, nah, they just can't even can't get access to it. I don't know. What am I going to do, right? It's, remember, remember when they were using under Obama, one of the big terms was food deserts. Remember that? Oh, you can't buy a... Remember, he, he, he said you can get a gun easier than you can get a book in these communities. Guess what? You can get even easier than a gun. That's right. You can have an abortion. And you don't even have to tell your parents. They don't need to know. You're 13. You're almost an adult now. No, you're 13. Sad, sad times we're living in here. I just mind-boggling. But back to Elizabeth Warren, who is always going to lead these fights... I didn't catch this clip last week, but we got to play first. I got to play for you the other two clips. So here, Elizabeth Warren, she goes on this Breakfast Club show, uh, the one where Hillary did her Hillary hot sauce moment. This is what we're going to see going forward. And this is just a sample. See, the problem with Elizabeth Warren was this. She started to get popular, right? So she moved into the number three spot, little, little momentum behind her. And so they're all going to take down Joe. Because he's the leader, he's the guy. Again, he's Hillary Clinton in 2016. He's the presumptive nominee. So they're going to take her down. And this is how they're going to do it. This is classic. So wait, your family told you you were Native American? Yeah. Charlamagne tells me I'm Dominican, yeah. but I don't believe you. You are. How, yeah. long, how, long, how long did you hold on to that? Because there was some report that said you were Native American on your Texas bar license and that you said you were Native American on some documents when you were a professor at Harvard. Yeah. Like, why'd you do that? So it's what I believe. You know, that's... Like I said, it's what I learned from my family. <laughs> so my family were lying sacks of poop, and it's what I believe. I, uh, it's what I believe. This, this, 
this woman is hilarious. She absolutely cracks me. Between her and AOC, I don't know who's funnier. But just, yeah, yeah. What a, how she got into third place, to me, you, you got to really scratch your head on that. But I think uh, she's kind of dropped down since this. But they continue. I mean, these guys do a great job. I mentioned this on the show last week. This is, this is what the media should be doing. This, this is what the New York Times should be sitting down and going, hey, you know, you, you lied. And, and there's this article. The only question they didn't ask her that I wish they would have asked her is, did you ever see the article? Articles that were written about you proclaiming you to be the first woman of color hired by Harvard because I'm guessing she did. And I'm guessing she thought that was really cool. So they went on. When did you find out you, when did you, find out you weren't? Well, you know, it's, it, I'm not a person of color. I'm not a citizen. No? When did you find out? This morning on the way to the studio, last week, 30 years ago, when did you find out? That was the key question. This was the only time, this is the only one, where they really let her off the hook. I'll shut up now and let it play. When did you find out you, when did you, find out you weren't? Well, you know, it's, it, I'm not a person of color. I'm not we a know citizen that. of a tribe. Right. And tribal citizenship is an important distinction. And right. not something I am. So. Were there any benefits to that? No. Yes. Boston Globe did a full investigation. It never affected, <laughs> nothing about my family ever affected any job I ever got. Um, she didn't get a discount in college. No. You kind of like the original Rachel Dozov a little bit. Rachel Dozov was a white woman pretending to be black. No, this is what I learned from my family. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do have to say this. <laughs> After I quit laughing. So, you know, somebody said... Yeah, it was about a month ago. Somebody said that I was a jerk. They called me a jerk. So I quickly got on the phone with the Boston Globe. And I want you to know that they have done a comprehensive study. And they have found that I'm not. So there's that. But here was the thing. Here's, here's why we're playing this again. Because there's another clip in this interview. Now, I hadn't listened to the whole thing. I only had listened to this portion of it with the original Rachel Dolezal thing. But listen to this. You want to talk about this this is so opposite of Donald Trump. This is a woman who spent her entire life in the political field as a politician, double talk. She didn't answer the question, when did you find out, right? That, that was the question. When did you find out? So I really, really wish they would have said, no, 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 no. When? Last week, this morning on the way to the student, when did you find out? You, you knew before you took the test. Come on. She could have said that. That should have been the answer. Well, once I took the test, you know, I realized that. Well, maybe we had some food. No, because she's a politician. See, they hate President Trump because when they ask President Trump a question, he answers it. He doesn't go, you know what? Uh, well, you know, my family. No, he takes complete responsibility. He answers the question directly. You may not like his answer, but you know he's telling you the truth. This is what he really believes. This woman. It's a, it's a script. She's reading off a script, and she rewrites her script on a daily basis. So he continued on, and they asked this because when she was in college, she also, and even younger, she said she was a Republican. See, she's always tried to use that line. Well, I used to be a Republican, and, uh, and she's been very forceful with it. So she used to be a Republican, and the reason she's not is because she finally realized that people with views like, well, you and I, 
are really bad people. We're horrible people. So she evolved into a better person by becoming a Democrat. So listen to her here, though. Listen when they ask her that question. They say, well, I understand you used to say you were a Republican. Now she's like, well, yeah, I don't know. You know, I really don't know what I was. No, no, no. Her whole political foundation, just like Joe Biden with the Hyde Amendment, is built on this, on how she evolved and became a better person and, and how because – see, here's the key. Because she used to be a Republican, because she used to be, she got to know the party and she got to know how you and I think and, and, and she realized, wow, these are awful people. i got to get away from these people. So it's, this is very, very important. But I want you to listen to how she answers this, because now all of a sudden, she's a little fuzzy on it. What were your views back in the day? Because if I read correctly, you were a Republican. I just wasn't politically active. And, and that's when I... Republican? And I say I really... We weren't active. Mm-hmm. I actually don't even know. Okay. I don't mm-hmm. I even know how they were. a lot of confusion back in the day, Ms. Warren. You yeah. thought you were Native American? You thought you was Republican? Like, yeah. when did you, you get on the right track? A big part of it was when I got into the fight... The word salad. I love the word salad. The big part of it was when I got into the fight. So, okay, let's recap. Now she doesn't know. She wasn't politically active. She really didn't know what she was. <laughs> I think we've all determined that at this point, right? <laughs> she doesn't know what she was. But that's not what she said. All these years of campaigning, she has used that story. So she knew when she was standing up in front of people trying to get him to vote for her, she knew then that she was absolutely a Republican. Yep, she believed it. She's even gone into specifics. Well, the economy and the – she's given specifics on why she was a Republican. Now it's really fuzzy. I don't – boy, I don't even – I don't know what I was, to be honest with you. So are you being honest now or were you being honest then? Because here's the thing. It can't be both. So this is going to be fascinating because people are going to – you don't think that all the others – so you got Elizabeth Warren who was in third. Now she's, I think, dropping down to like fourth. You don't think the rest of these people, just like they did with Joe Biden the other day, you don't think they're all not sitting down with their little notebook on, ha-ha. They're going to go back because the media won't do this. They're going to go back, and they're going to find these speeches, and they're going to say, you told people at a campaign rally in – 2000 and whatever, that you were a Republican. You went on it, you explained it, but now you say you're really not sure. They're going to do exactly what I'm doing here. See, collectivism, this is when it falls apart, because collectivism was, for them, what they did last time, right? Where they said, okay, well, it's Hillary's turn. And it's, when you, when you live in a collective society, when, you, when everything about you is collectivism, you, you pick people. So, so the, 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 there's not supposed to be any power structure, right? But there is a power structure. There always has to be a power structure. Somebody's got to call the shots. So they picked the candidate last time. They've picked the candidate this time, too, but they're trying to go, well, you know, we're not really picking because we don't want to get – yes, they are. It's the way you have to be. So if you're in that group of 3.5 million candidates, somehow – Somehow you've got to stand out. You can't beat Joe Biden and just be a collectivist. You, you can't just – you can't all believe the same thing and stand out, which is, again, always the problem with collectivism is nobody stands out. Somebody decides. 
who's a pilot. Somebody decides who's this, who's that. Somebody decides who works in the factory. Somebody decides who cleans the streets. Somebody decides who picks up the trash. That's the problem. You don't get to decide. Now, a few people, a few beautiful people at the top of the power structure, they will tell you what you're going to be. So here you've got all these people trying to figure out how do, well, how do I stand out? And how do I rise above all this? They're going to destroy each other. They're trying to do it to Joe Biden right now. There you heard an <laughs> incredible hit job on Elizabeth Warren. And bravo to the Breakfast Club folks. I think that's, that's awesome. I love that last one, though. It just really, that defines politics. And, and that's just not Elizabeth Warren. That's on both sides. We hear, we hear uh, Republicans do it as well. We hear, John McCain flip-flopped more than, you know, more than Joe Biden did the other day anyway. So it happens on both sides. People are sick and tired of this. That's why they like Trump. It's also why they hate him, but it's why they like him. It's refreshing. It's different. You know that's what he's thinking. It's just beautiful. And you wait. You, I mean, you wait until they get up on that debate stage. Right? I firmly believe it'll be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Do, do you all remember? Do you remember the 30 years thing that, that Trump did to Hillary Clinton, which really, I think, marked the major turning point? Because people went, yeah, yeah, she's been there forever. You don't think he's not going to do this to Joe Biden as well? Look at Ohio and look at all of these places where so many of their of their jobs and their companies are just leaving. They're gone. And Hillary, I just ask you this. You've been doing this for 30 years. Why are you just thinking about these solutions right now? For 30 years you've been doing it, and now you're just starting to think of solutions. Well, actually, I will bring, excuse me, I will bring back jobs. You can't bring back jobs. Well, actually, um, I have thought about this quite a bit. Yeah, for 30 and years. I have, uh, well, not quite that long. Uh, <laughs> for 30, everybody laughed at her. Even the people that voted for Hillary that were sitting in that audience, they laughed. She was embarrassed. She was humiliated. You don't think he's not going to do that to Joe Biden? You add another five, ten years to that. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. It's going to be fun to watch. Right back after this. In salute to those who've protected us and our families, we'd like to return the favor. Military veterans and their families get 30 days free and 15% off LifeLock identity theft protection. Shape the best sleep of your life. Sleep number beds with Sleep IQ technology adjust any way you want it. The bed that moves you, only at a Sleep Number store. Let's say you need to take care of legal matters. Wouldn't it be nice if there was an easier, less expensive option than using a traditional lawyer? Well, LegalZoom came up with a better way. We took the best of the old and combined it with modern technology. Together you get quality services on your terms with total customer support. 
LegalZoom documents have been accepted in all 50 states, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So go to LegalZoom.com today and see for yourself. It's law. It just makes sense. Wouldn't it be nice if there was an easier, less expensive option than a traditional lawyer? At LegalZoom, you get personalized services for your family and your business that's 100% guaranteed. So go to LegalZoom.com today for personalized, affordable legal protection. Been looking for an online gathering place? You know, a familiar screen does everything you're used to, except give you grief for being a conservative? You've got to try the Tea Party community. At TPC, you'll know how everything works from the very first minute, and you'll probably find a lot of friends who are already there. Organize, communicate, share ideas, upcoming events, pictures, and videos. The Tea Party community connects and empowers like-minded, politically conservative people. Like you, sign up today at TeaPartyCommunity.com. Building owners, you got to clean up your act. You got to retrofit. You got to save energy. If you don't do it by 2030, there will be serious fines as high as a million dollars or more for the biggest buildings. And this mandate is going to guarantee that we reduce emissions. We're going to ban the classic glass and steel skyscrapers. enough there that any other person who has um, engaged in those acts uh, would certainly uh, have been indicted. In the fight not only to defeat Trump and his racism and his sexism and his homophobia, this is a time for the American people to come together in the fight for economic justice social justice, racial justice, and environmental justice. And that is, that is what this campaign is about. I think most Americans, not just Democrats, would agree with it. We all, anybody who's got a half a brain, agrees that there is climate change and that human activity has caused it. And we better do something about it or we're going to be cooked, or certainly our children are going to be cooked. Just because I work at home doesn't mean I want to look like I do. That's why I'm building my corporate image with a Regis virtual office. I simply use one of Regis's 750 high-profile business addresses as my own. My calls are answered by a professional receptionist in my company's name. And when I need to meet, Regis offers conference rooms and furnished offices. With all this and more from just $150 a month, that works for me. So try it today, and you'll even get one month free. Just call 888-OFFICES or visit Regis.com. That's R-E-G-U-S.com. Hi, this is former Congressman, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Alan West. Hi, this is Ben Shapiro, New York Times bestselling author of Bullies. Hi, I'm Charlie Daniels, and I'm on the Don Smith Show, where it is okay. In fact, it's wonderful to be a conservative. the show hope you're having a great saturday so far again coming up victor davis hansen sean spicer and right now is my pleasure to bring on my next guest he is the editor of people's pundit his name is richard barris hey rich welcome back to the show thanks for having me back Don. how, how are we all doing this week Can we're doing better now rich we're doing better i just got my water so 
we're all right now. So how are you doing? <laughs> oh, living the dream. Living the dream as always. Absolutely. Well, what vacation, an impression. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Beautiful weather. Uh, so let's get into this right now. The job report came out here yesterday. I want to get right into the economic news. And uh, a little disappointing for some. Um, give us your take on it. What, what's the breakdown on the job number for this for this month? Right. So, I mean, it, it, it is a little disappointing. I thought that the consensus, which was the consensus forecast, was about 180. I, I thought that was a little high. Um, you know, I, I know others that did as well. Uh, but, I, you know, 75,000 was a little was even lower than I was expecting. I was thinking maybe a buck 20, buck 25. Uh, so that was a little bit disappointing. But, you know, going back to earlier in the week when we looked at the ADP uh, report, I think it's been pretty clear, and we have spoken about this now for, you know, uh, months and months. We have a skills gap problem. That's one, which is a good problem to have. And then also, Dom, part of this is when you're at 3.6% unemployment, job creation is not only going to, it's expected to slow down. The labor market is tight, and, uh, you know, uh, employers are having a hard time finding people that have the skills to fit the jobs that are out there. So there is some concern there and has been for a while. You know, we have a whole generation of liberal arts majors, and that doesn't cut it when you're moving from a – from a service sector economy to a goods producing economy. And while the service sector is still firing, uh, goods slowed down, and it slowed because they don't have people who are qualified to fill these jobs. Uh, but on the plus side, which the media reported as a negative, average hourly earnings wages were at 3.1. The consensus was 3.2, not really a big miss. It has slowed. We always put the graph up for our average hourly earnings. It has slowed. But it's important to remember that it's above 3% now for the 10th consecutive month, and it didn't get, folks, it hasn't been above or at even. It hasn't been at 3% since before the Great Recession, and it didn't start to go above it until it meet that threshold until the fourth quarter of 2018. So since then, we've had consecutive uh, and wage growth of actually greater i mean the gauge the threshold is three or more but it's been greater this is the closest it's been to three so i heard the media yesterday don reporting this is like wages are down they're slowing we barack obama would have killed for wage growth to slow like this. Mm-hmm. so i mean it's not horrible news yet let's not push the panic button but yeah i mean uh they're you know construction slowed manufacturing was about even so you know we'll, we'll just have to see moving forward if if it's a, a real slowdown or if, uh, you know, there, there, there are some factors here. We'll see. You know, I want to dig into two things you mentioned there because I think they are so important and there, there's no coverage on this. I mean, I don't think anybody else right now is sitting around having the conversation that you and I are having right now. Let's talk about this, the skills gap. And you mentioned this. We have liberal arts majors all over the country popping out of school every every day now, every year now. And, and th- those aren't the skills we need. This is a, we are going back into a manufacturing, which is the other point I want to get to as well. But is this something that we should capitalize on? Or when I say we, when I say the Republican Party, the, the 2020 Trump campaign, should they seize on this and start explaining this to the American people? Because it, it's very uh, apparent yeah. that, that the school systems aren't going to do this. I think the colleges should say, hey, you know – you might want to look into here's some, but they don't do that. They want to have these liberal arts majors because you can be a teacher if you get that degree and you can teach other kids to how to get a degree in liberal arts, which isn't going to do them any good. But how, how do we seize on this? 
You know, that's a great question. And just for what you were saying before, nobody is talking about this. People want to blame tariffs and Donald Trump. I mean, it's just it's nuts, Don. During a time of high tariffs in this country, we had a manufacturing or goods producing sector that boomed and created the middle class during periods of very high protectionism. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's ridiculous. And putting that aside politically, you live in Florida. I live in Florida. Ron DeSantis has done an amazing job at capitalizing on the political benefit of talking about the skills gap. He is immensely popular. Big part of his vote came from education. It came from talking about the, the skills gap and how schools are failing us. It's, it's like it measures, and he says this, he talks about this a lot down here, the current school system, both in secondary and uh, uh, you know undergrad and graduate education, it measures success based on college achievements, and that's not how, that's not been the historical or even the traditional gauge of measure, you know, did you get the correct education or training to succeed out in the labor market? That has never been the, the uh, historical gauge in America. But, you know, there was a period, and that's true for both Republicans and did Bush did the same thing, so did Obama. And he just ramped it up. Obama just ramped it up. But they, did, they basically demoted the importance of vocational training. And Ron DeSantis has done a lot already and plans to do more. And look at his job approval rating. He won. And I, I, I don't even know what the right word. Outperformed is not the right word. He out, he, let's just use it. He outperformed among black female voters down here to be a black candidate because mm-hmm. he spoke about education. And school choice and vocational and and just on the job tra- job training uh, programs and he's following through on that. So I think that you know governors. The great thing about America, Don, the states are always really the truly the laboratory of democracy. And uh, you know he's running that experiment down here, much like Scott Walker did, by the way, during his time as governor in Wisconsin. And it, it was politically beneficial. So yeah, I mean because Democrats are not seizing on that. What are they talking about? Wiping college tuition slate clean to the tune of trillions of dollars, and everybody should be able to get a college degree. Well, the fact is, if we want an economy that is strong for national security, it's not good for everybody to have a college degree. I mean, it's, uh-huh. it's kind of ludicrous when you think about it, Don. It's just ludicrous. Yeah, it is. So, well, let yeah, me, it's a political. Let me get uh, it. It's a political opportunity. Let me get to my the other point because you made another great point in that opening uh, answer that you gave. And that's the transitioning. We, we were, for eight years, we were transitioning from a manufacturing economy, which again, year, just like you said, built the middle class. We were transferring into a service. So we were selling products that were made somewhere else, which I had a heated conversation with Jonathan Honig, who I like, uh, about that. He thought, he thought that was great. Oh, that's great. No, we're better off being in that kind of retail market. No, we're not. We're better off making things. That's what America does. We make things. We make great things. But let's talk about this because... Just with what President Trump has done up to this point, two and a half years, we are now transitioning back. As you, as you said, we are transitioning back into making stuff again. We're opening up steel plants. We're, we're starting to make products again, and this is a good thing, but it's created the skills gap. So talk a little bit about that because well, let, let me set it up first. I got to give you this. Let me set it up with this clip, and then I want you to respond to how we are now transitioning back into that manufacturing economy. Listen to this. He's going to bring all these jobs back. Well, how exactly are you going to do that? What are you going to do? He just says, well, I'm going to to negotiate a better deal. Well, how how exactly are you going to negotiate that? What magic wand do you have? And 
usually the answer is he doesn't have an answer. <laughs> yes, he does. So, Rich, take oh, it away. Wow. You know, I mean, the problem turned out to be that the spell was too strong. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the argument <laughs> one could actually make. I mean, this happened quicker than our labor force was prepared to deal with. And, you know, I get to give John and, and guys like that credit. You know, smart guys, sharp guys. But you know what it is, Don? It's experience. They, it's, they didn't come from the neighborhood. You know, I don't know about you, but my friends, I, I went to, uh, you know, I worked both with my hands and went to college and was in the Army. People mm-hmm. like John, you know, with practice theory, um, you know, they, they don't live the experience out. They didn't have friends, a lot of these guys, who relied on HVAC, you know, a, a small company their father may have built up or carpentry or, uh, you know, their grandfather's electrical business that they were expected to take over, which is another, by the way, where immigration comes into the picture and why they usually fall on the side of just open the doors because they don't see how it impacts real lives, and they didn't see how, um, you know, how pushing, like I said, like demoting the importance of those positions and those skills and those jobs, how that would impact us as we did transition back. And we've been talking on this show now for a long time about this. The Small Business um, uh, Optimism Index, the uh, National Manufacturers Optimism Quarterly Index, they have all been screaming, skills gap. We love it. We love it. We love it. But we don't have the workers to fill these jobs. We're going to need something uh, to put some some people in the pipeline. And, um, you know, it just it transferred over. It started to transform so quickly that it left that gap. And uh, like I said, you know, the media has been, you know, almost obsessed with certain talking points. They do a disservice to the American people. This has been, you know, uh, at least an 18 month trend. At least the number one problem in all these surveys under Barack Obama that was cited by employers and manufacturers was always the tax and regulatory environment. That was always the number one problem, or at least, uh, you know, it would swap out with, uh, with some other, other indicators here and there. But that was the predominant issue they had. Now, that, that changed really quite rapidly under Donald Trump. You know, Republicans got in there and repealed a lot of these regulations uh, but, you know, within the time frame that they had to do it, CRAs. And it had an impact a lot quicker than pro- probably some expected. And you know, that, that transferred right over. And when we saw those surveys, you know, it was coming in just number one, number one, and it still is right to this day uh, where you know, we cannot find qualified workers to fill these jobs. They're just not skilled. So, uh, you know, I know Ivanka Trump and and I know the Trump administration isn't blind to this, but we have a Congress that basically does nothing now. And, uh, you know, I think that the the right answer is for the states and the governors to take a hold of this because education is local anyway. You know, follow the DeSantis model and uh, and go to town and and start filling these things because America is stronger when it makes, Don, stronger when it makes. Any nation is stronger when it produces. And not to mention you're self-sufficient then, too. But, you know, I think one thing that, that's really fascinating to me on this, you, you mentioned how Congress isn't doing anything on this. It's not just Congress. It's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce who supports everything that yeah. kills jobs, that kills wage growth. That it's, uh, it's unbelievable to watch. But I want to ask you about this because I think this is going to be something to watch as we go through this uh, 2020 campaign or this election cycle. And that's the unions, Rich, because directly to what we're talking about right here, 
transitioning to a service economy doesn't do the unions much good. What, what helps the unions is the manufacturing base, is coming back to a, ma- a country that makes things, because that's what a lot of the unions do. Sure, there are service sector unions and all those kind of things, but the primary thing, the steel workers, I mean, look at, look at what Michael Bloomberg, $500 million rich, the guy's going to do to destroy to destroy the coal industry and the natural gas industry. How in the hell does that help a union worker? Because those things are controlled by the union. So I'm curious to watch, and I want your, your input on this. What do you think this does to the hardcore union vote that has always been directly aligned with the Democrat Party? I don't know how Trump cannot capitalize off of this. Right, and we've seen, you know, under Obama, we we saw, you know, a, a great example of that, you know, Kentucky people think of as a deep red state. But, you know, somewhere like the 5th Congressional District was like the last bastion of working class Democrats who, you know, very union heavy, historically, you know, blue districts because, uh, you know, the Democrats were the pro-union party and the pro-worker party for years. Or at least that that was the, uh, you know, that was the construct. And those those districts turned, those neighborhoods turned on. And, uh, you know, look at somebody like Michael Bloomberg there. They essentially just write off states like West Virginia. They don't want them back. They don't want them back. They want to change mm-hmm. this uh, whole system anyway to a popular vote. And as long as they can carry New York, the D.C., and Illinois, and California, they can do it. They feel that they don't need – so they've, they've abandoned those people, and it would be absolutely stupid not to capitalize on that. Coal industry alone is directly supports 52,000 American workers directly for jobs. There are you know, multiple thousands more that rely on them for family ties, family connections, who rely on those household incomes, and then countless thousands more, tens of thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, who rely on them for supportive services. So, you know, jobs that support those industries in those sectors. So it just, you know, it, they just, they wrote them off, and, uh, you know, they, I think that's kind of important for the Republicans to make that case. Uh, they don't care about those people anymore. They have a totally different worldview of uh, how they see America's role in the world anyway. So what we're, t- we're talking about with, you know, America would be stronger if we can produce, be self-sufficient. None of that really matters to them, let's be honest, right, Don? So they don't care mm-hmm. about uh, the workers that will be hurt. And same thing with the Green New Deal. Uh, you know, Americans, uh, that's widely out of the mainstream, but they don't care because they figure as long as, like I said, they can carry those four big blue states, that's all they need. So Republicans really have to frame that because they want to always, you know, the media helps them make this about race, and it's really not. It's about culture and class. So it's more of it's not a white versus color, or it's it's an us versus them, and that really is the that was the message that propelled Trump in 2016. That's the message he should seize again and run with. And the pro, you know, the only the problem I see with the Republican Party, you mentioned the Chamber of Commerce before. Uh, you know, all week long, sources are telling us, you know, uh, that, that the senators were getting us, a lot of them, were getting ready to undermine Trump on the, on the tariffs on Mexico for the border uh, mm-hmm. negotiations. And, it, and why? Because of the Chamber of Commerce. I'm literally listening to one guy, you know, uh, you know say, well, I got this plan in my, in my state, and, but it's, what does that matter? If they, you know, it's hurting the plant that's in Mexico, right? It's not hurting mm-hmm. the plant in your state. So what is that? That's the Chamber of Commerce talking. And I feel like yep. the Republicans, they, he's got to force that evolution. Some of the voters do. Uh, you know, really, that's 
really who's going to do the pushing. The voters have to force that evolution. There, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one one election of a man a revolution does not make. The voters have to take it the rest of the way. They really do. Yeah, well, you know, and I think I think another part of this too is finally Joe Biden has come out now. Now he's got this plagiarized Green New Deal of his own, the Green okay. Biden deal. I guess it is. But but think about this: you're going to have whoever it is, whether it's Joe Biden or Sanders or any of them, they have to support the Green New Deal. Now we're talking about union workers, for example. There are six hundred thousand people that are employed in the passenger airline business. The Green New Deal. One of the first things it says is you got to eliminate air travel. The 600,000 jobs, and these are all union jobs. So I think that is also another uh, place where to continue to bring up the Green New Deal, how he can talk about how this is going to destroy jobs. This is going to be, I mean, the tariffs were, all the things they said that the tariffs were going to do, the Green New Deal absolutely does it. Nobody, nobody doubts that. Nobody says, well, no, they won't. They'll have other jobs. Do, you know, oh, no, no. Everybody understands it. So I think that is also another area where uh, President Trump can shine in these debates for sure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, about Joe Biden, you know, you're, look at how many of those union workers are actually showing up to his rallies, Don. They're, you know, they got the membership there, that a few membership would probably die hard Democrats anyway. And then you have the leaders who put on the, the, the event, and there's a handful of people. They're just not pouring into the Biden events. And I know what the polls uh-huh. say, but I just want to say this. I'm not saying Biden isn't a formidable candidate. I'm not sure he is or he's not at this point. I think that hatred on the left for Donald Trump is so strong that it'll propel just about anybody. But I will say this. Bernie's voters, about 85 to 90 percent of them are either extremely or very enthusiastic to vote for him. When it comes to Joe Biden, the guys are 65 percent combined. Now, I know what the polls say. They said this is starting to remind me a lot about Hillary Clinton, a lot like Hillary Clinton. And uh, the difference between her and him is that she at least had something progressive going for her where she would have been the first female president. Joe Biden has about nothing. She also was supposed to have deep ties to the black community and decades-long relationships that she fostered. And they were going to come out for her in droves. That really did not happen, especially in the Midwest. We saw it in Florida, but not in the Midwest, in states that ultimately cost her. Uh, you know, and, and I could keep going down the line here, but the, the, I see Joe Biden's strength in the big media polls right now. I'm just simply saying that his record, uh, when it comes down to it, and Trump takes to the campaign trail, his record it very much has the same, uh, the same uh, what's the word, exposure. I guess is what I'm trying to say here. He has the same exposure that Hillary Clinton has, and he also has the same lack of enthusiasm. And there's going to be a large chunk of Bernie voters who simply will not vote for Joe Biden. I'm telling you that's going to happen. And he better hope he wins enough suburban voters if he gets the nomination because he's going to lose those workers we were just talking about. They're not going to run out for him in the numbers that everybody thinks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the president gets a deal with uh, with Mexico, which avoids the tariffs that he threatened on. And let's I want to talk about it from this point, though, because just what I've seen here today and uh, even as soon as the deal was was announced, I want to talk about the media, because you mentioned how they basically this is going to be Armageddon. I mean, everything that they talk about is going to be yeah, Armageddon is. and the sky is falling and all. It's all bad. It's all bad. Nothing good could ever happen with this president. But let's talk about this. He gets this deal. So he threatens him. He says, hey, I'm going to make you responsible. He's what a what an amazing concept. He's going to make Mexico responsible for the people that are traveling all the way across Mexico to get to the United States. They're help, they were helping him, Rich. 
They were helping these people. So now he says, okay, I'm going to make it hurt for you then. And everybody says, well, no, it's going to hurt us. Well, then, geez, I wonder why Mexico couldn't get somebody here fast enough. But anyway, we'll set that aside. So here's the New York Times. This is their headline. Trump mixes economic and national security, plunging the U.S. into multiple fights. Rich, this is how they're, they're reporting that he got the deal, that he won. But anyway, here's USA Today. Tr- Trump pulls Mexico tariff threat while claiming deal by claiming deal over migrants reached. He claims there's a deal. That's a USA Today. Here's CNN. Pelosi on Trump. Mexico agreement. Threats and temper tantrums are no way to negotiate. He just got the deal, Rich. What is going yeah, on? With I know it. And, and that, well, they don't want people to have any national pride, um, any, any pride in their president. Here's the truth. The truth is, and we had this story earlier in the week, the truth is Mexican officials went running to U.S. officials. We'll, do, we'll increase immigration enforcement. Uh, we'll allow the U.S. to deport uh, those that we find to be bogus asylum claims, which, by the way, is about 9 in 10 of the people who come here. And it's probably going to be more because now the standards are going to be more strict. But here's something that they said they would never do. And I'm telling you, on, on more occasions than we, we lost count. They said they would never support what is referred to as a safe third country agreement. And what that basically means is if you are a national coming through, uh, coming from Guatemala and you want to claim asylum, and this is already international law, which has always been the craziest thing about this, you must apply for asylum in the first safe country that you enter. To Guatemalans, it's Mexico. Uh, to those who are coming from Honduras and El Salvador, their first country is Guatemala. So since they're not safe, uh, you know, in the, in the minds of those who are applying, the best they can hope to do is applying in Mexico. Those who get here, which, because you were just saying, Mexico was doing nothing. They were allowing them. And this is the most important part of the deal. Those who just happen to slip by all, against all odds, slip past Mexican <laughs> authorities all the way through the country from the southern border to the northern border, those who happen to make it through are going to be deported back to the first, uh, the safe third country. So, again, that would be they're going back to Mexico, and then Mexico will have to deal with them. Why is that important? Because when they get here, folks, the asylum claims are, are vast majority are denied. And the media does never tells the American people this. Ninety percent of these claims are denied. The problem is they make them and then disappear into the interior of the United States. They settle down, get a job because some Chamber of Commerce-backed industry gives them a job. They get some, uh, you know, apartment somewhere, have four or five kids who turn out who, who are, you know, U.S. natural-born citizens, and and the cycle just keeps going. And it's important to be able at that moment before they disappear into the interior to send them back, because otherwise, uh, you know, I really do think that word invasion is accurate. I've, I, you know, everyone who's been offended by the use of that word. I'm still waiting on somebody to tell me what else this is. This is a nonviolent invasion, and the American people need – they have a right to their own sovereignty. Where, no matter where you are in this issue, they have a right to that sovereignty. And uh, you know, it, they are right now being subverted by, their me- by media and activist groups, and it's really – it's, it's, it's a travesty. It really is a travesty. It is. Because these yeah, people really are not is. here for valid claims anyway. Absolutely. Well, his name is Richard Barris. He is the editor of peoplespunditdaily.com. Check him out today. Rich, great talking to you. Have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk again next week.
You too, my friend. Enjoyable, as always. All the best, and speak to you next week. All right, Richard Barris, peoplespunditdaily.com. Check him out today. Just a couple, just to give you a few more headlines here. U.S.-Mexico talks. Trump hails deal on migrants to avoid tariffs. That's BBC. Los Angeles Times. U.S. and Mexico strike a deal on migration, staving off Trump's tariff plan. So fortunately, the U.S. stepped in and made a deal with Mexico. Yes, yeah, he's the president of the U.S. But they staved it off and didn't know... Trump pulls Mexico tariff threat while claiming deal over migrants reached. I still love that one. That is USA Today. USA crap today, I think, is what it really is. It is time for our weekly Vets in the Fight sit rep. Of course, brought to us by our friends at Special Operations Speaks and Vets in the Fight. Hello, all you vets in the fight. This is David Miller with your weekly Special Operations Speaks Vets in the Fight sit rep. We've harpooned social media on many occasions and will continue to do so. They have joined forces with the elitist, globalist left here and abroad to dismantle and destroy, leaving only carnage in their wake. They, along with their malevolent consorts in the deep state, have tremendous power over information and are using that power not only to shape their truth, but ours as well. For example, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have all curtsied to the will of the Chinese government and have virtually blacked out the corruption of the Chai Coms, all in order to capture this massive market. We, too, here at home, have been the victims of the truth slayers. Project Veritas broke a huge story in January 2018 of how Twitter employees shadow-banned conservative voices. Co-conspirators in the mainstream media dutifully ignored the story. Twitter accounts permanently banned included at Eagle Rising and Alan West's at Great Am Repub. No reasons given. They were just disappeared. James Woods was suspended for abuse behavior for supposed targeting harassment. But perhaps the most egregious, bizarro world example was the flagging of the Declaration of Independence as hate speech on a July 4th post, until the backlash was just too much for Facebook to bear. Meanwhile, posts showing a decapitated Donald Trump, calls for assassination of our president and other GOP conservatives go unchallenged, one might say even encouraged. Looking down the road to election 2020, we see the gathering of forces that oppose the very concept of the American Republic and of the voting process itself. Those forces will employ their leftist shadow versions of our American instruments of national power to defeat America. They know it may well be their last grab at the brass ring, and they intend to be successful or die in the process. This is not hyperbole. Those leftist shadow instruments of power are globalism, information, militarism, and money. We'll talk about each of these in subsequent sit-reps and how we may want to deal with them. For this sitrep, the leftist shadow instrument of information is where we want to start. During the Trump victory march to the presidency in 2016, we saw social media play a seminal role in its success. Facebook and Twitter were key communications networking paths for grassroots groups. These permitted the bypassing of the legacy TV and cable channels who were spewing propaganda and disinformation that would and probably did make the chiefs of the former Soviet propaganda arms proud of the American Democrat Communist Party. 
The Trump train's win with an important contribution by its social media success was not lost on the Democrat National Committee and their leftist operatives. In a preview of things to come, Facebook and Twitter, along with YouTube and Amazon.com, embarked on measures to suppress pro-Trump MAGA supporters while leaving carte blanche to their partisans on the left and even leaving ISIS free reign. Increasingly, our SOS Facebook page, where we reach nearly 1 million supporters each month, and our Twitter feed, with about 3,500 followers, has drawn attention. Facebook has engaged in something called deboosting our posts, limiting their reach to our audience. Twitter is more random, and one can easily run afoul of its, quote, community standards, unquote, and find yourself in Twitter purgatory for weeks, or in the case of James Woods, forever. We fully expect the leftist information cartel to shut down our key instruments of communication, Facebook and Twitter, the deeper we get into 2020. We've begun to build alternatives by starting Special Operations Speaks accounts with MeWe.com as a replacement for Facebook. MeWe.com has no advertising, it doesn't police your subject matter, and it doesn't collect your data to resell it as the other information giants do. Check out MeWe.com and see if it might fit your bill. While there, visit Special Operations Speaks. We currently have about 200 folks who've joined us from our Facebook gang. You'll find MeWe.com easy to use and have the opportunity to recommend enhancements. MeWe.com's senior advisor is inventor of the web. No, not Elcor. Sir Tim Berners-Lee. As for a Twitter replacement, we are currently looking at Parler.com. That's P-A-R-L-E-R.com one that may be better suited for our purposes and maybe yours. One thing is certain, without grassroots Internet communications, we're going to have an extremely hard time winning the elections in 2020. There's more to come on all this. This week saw more tributes to D-Day than we can ever remember, the 75th anniversary. That is a good thing. Go to our Special Operations Speaks website and see Lessons and Legacy of D-Day. We owe so very much to so remaining few. This is David Miller for Special Operations Speaks and Vets in the Fight Everywhere. Until next week, may God bless our exceptional republic. Deo Presso Lever. Have you ever been frustrated when you go to the doctor and are asked to fill out forms over and over again? And are asked for information that you don't remember? Or you have to submit the same form to multiple organizations? And each time you are asked to fill out the same form by hand. What about filling out business or legal forms? All manually. Maybe you've spent a lot of time filling out a form, made sure that everything is correct, and oops, the person who re-entered the data into the computer system made several mistakes. Why couldn't you do it from home in advance, where you could find all of the necessary documents? Now you can at Formateer.com. The next time you need a form filled out, the information can be found right at your fingertips. If you're an individual, you may find some forms ready to use on Formateer.com. Or we may be able to create a custom form for you at a very low cost or no cost at all. If you're a small business, Formateer.com will be happy to create a set of forms or a complete data entry solution for your business needs. If you're a business that provides software, IT solutions, or both to another business, Formateer.com has a great solution for you as well. Our parent company, RenderX, provides software and solutions to a very diversified group. 
from individuals to Fortune 500 companies. Even the United States government budget is formatted with RenderX software. With Formateer.com, customers can fill out forms from their homes in advance when and where they have all the required information. Or they can edit information that has changed if they filled out the form previously. No writing for them, no data reentry for you. Form filling solutions for businesses or individuals at Formateer.com. That's Formateer.com. And here is our newly remodeled hotel business center. Lobby disk drive computer, dot matrix printer, and modem. A modem? That's right. Dial up. Hello. Need a new way to work when you're on the road? Regis has over 1,100 professional business lounges. Access to meeting rooms with video conference studios. Private offices you can book by the hour or day. And a mobile app to find Regis locations. Regis is the new way to work. Call now and get two months free. Your mom's got your back. Your friends have your back. Your dog's definitely got your back. But who's got your back when you need legal help? We do. We're LegalZoom. And over the last 10 years, we've helped millions of people protect their families and run their businesses. We have the right people on hand to answer your questions, backed by a trusted network of attorneys. So visit us today for legal help you can count on. LegalZoom. Legal help is here. This is Don Smith from The Don Smith Show. As a conservative talk show host, there is one undeniable truth. Nobody is more uplifting and inspiring than the Democrats. I've always envied them for this. In fact, one could almost say with the new crop that has just come into Congress, they light up our lives. The world is going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change. You give me hope to You know, if that's what radical means, call me a radical. You light up my Maybe we shouldn't be eating a hamburger for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Chuck Woolery, you're listening to the Don Smith Show, where it's okay to be a conservative.
Hey, welcome back to the program. We are fighting the good fight here today and every day. You know, just read these headlines. This is the this is considered the mainstream media. This is you know we've got go read these people's Twitter feeds. Go read their Facebook pages. I mean, can you imagine this? And imagine if Walter Cronkite was in today's day. What would, I mean, what would his Twitter feed look like? I wonder that. But there is no such thing as uh, real media, true journalism anymore. Um, well, at least you can't find it on TV anyway. You know, just watching all this stuff. I think one thing we've got to understand. I talked at the beginning of the program that we're going to try to kind of explain this uh, this TDS, Trump derangement syndrome, how it's gotten here. What's happened? Why why does this guy? So get under everybody's skin. You've got Hillary Clinton right now going around the, the world telling everybody that she's living rent-free in Donald Trump's head. Yeah. <laughs> she's going around the world talking about Donald Trump every single day. But he, she's in his head, right? No, no, no. It's the other way because she still can't get over it. Even after her book, What Happened, she apparently doesn't know what happened. But this is the problem. He's different. He's completely different. We, we did the Elizabeth Warren example earlier where she does the, the political pivot and I'll issue a position paper on this and after I review. You know, people get sick of that. It's called a word salad. It means nothing. You listen to most of these people on TV, whether it's Adam Schiff or Nadler or Schumer or Pelosi or any of It's word salads. It's a bunch of words that don't say anything, Right. Apparently now they'll all be going through Alyssa Milano to get the actual uh, official positions that they have. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating because they live in this bubble, and he doesn't. He just says things. So I had an opportunity here uh, not too long back to sit down with former Press Secretary Sean Spicer, who great new book out if you have not read it. It's called The Briefing. Excellent book. Really gives you the insight of being inside of this. But it's a unique time, and he appreciated that. So in this interview, we talk a little bit about his book, which, again, is a great book, but we really get into what is it like? Because the biggest problem that the Republicans have always had, whether it was Mitt Romney, whether it was John McCain, it doesn't matter, George Bush even, has been messaging the ability to say, hey, wait a minute, this is why this is good. And that's why I so hope this, uh, tr the Trump campaign through 2020, and even before that, that they explain to the American people what do terrorists do? What did I accomplish by doing this? Why did I make this threat? What? You've got to message this stuff. You've got to talk about how we're becoming a manufacturing country again. I mean, we never stopped manufacturing, but we were, like Rich said in the previous segment, we were transitioning into a service economy. We want to be manufacturing. So these are important things to explain. It's important to explain what illegal immigration does to our economy. I think that's something that's really important. We're going to talk about that professor, too, a little bit later, uh, who, who had the audacity to tell his students that the truth about legal immigration, what it means to our economy, that it's, no, it's not a good thing. It does not boost our economy. So anyway, we'll get into that. But Sean Spicer had a unique position because he, be, he was the guy who was supposed to typically would be the guy that would craft messages. He, he, he doesn't do that because Donald Trump, Cracks his own messages, and this has been a rub, I think, even, even within his own cabinet, within his own administration. Some people are like, hey, I'm supposed to. But Sean Spicer got that, and that was why I wanted to play this interview, because I think this really goes into one of the main reasons why the, why the media has so much disdain for this guy, right? And, and let me play one clip before I play that, because I think this is so important to set this up. 
This is what I'm talking about. This is what the media thinks their job is. Listen to this. He could have undermined the messaging so much that he can actually control right. uh, exactly what people think. And that is, the, that is yeah. our job. It's our job to control what people think. No, it's not. Your job is to present facts. Your job is to just present the data. People are smart enough to figure it out on their own, and they, this president does not allow them to be the filter, but he also didn't allow his own uh, press secretary to do the same. Here is my interview with former press secretary Sean Spicer. My real pleasure and honor right now to bring on former press secretary for President Donald Trump, Mr. Sean Spicer, who has an amazing new book. I just finished it yesterday. Uh, amazing stuff, and it's called The Briefing. You absolutely want to check it out. Sean Spicer. Welcome to the Don Smith Show. Hello, Don. Thanks for having me on this beautiful Saturday. Oh, it is, too. And I know you've got a little bit of a break here, so uh, good for you. I hope you're enjoying the day, and I appreciate your time here today. Let's get into this book a little bit, because I think one of the things that really stuck me, that really struck out to me, was your dad. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you talk a lot about your yeah. dad, and uh, he was obviously very pivotal and very important part of your life. But he had something to say that I, when I read this quote, I just went, Wow. I mean, talk about breaking it down to and making it as simple as possible. I think this describes President Trump as well as anything I've ever heard. Let me read this to you, and then I want your reaction to this. Your dad said, many candidates say something like, I will fight for policies that will create a better economy. While Trump says, I'm going to get your job back. I, I mean, how succinct, and I thought that was just a great description of why President Trump resonated with the American people. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, so I, I talk about growing up in Rhode Island. My dad was uh, sold boats for a living and really, you know, valued hard work and understood what it took to, to make a buck. And I think his point was, you know, Rhode Island is a place that struggles often. Uh, first one into any kind of bad economic situation, the last one out. And so many times working class men and women had heard exactly what my dad was saying, that politicians would come along and say, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to fight for this policy or I'm going to try to you know, enact things that will get greater economic growth and all this. And I, I think for most people it, it, it falls on deaf ears. They go, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before. Trump was very specific about understanding the needs that working class men and women have, which is that their jobs – uh, in many cases are at stake because of a lot of these policies. And he was looking after their job, not focused necessarily. I mean, and I know that sounds ba backwards in terms of the, the nuance, but the point is that most people are tired. They don't really policies as much as the results. And Trump was saying, I want to focus on the result, which is your job and your well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it was very well said. Now, let me talk about this because that can be a double-edged sword, Sean, when it comes to being plain spoken and, and not sitting down and actually working on a crafted message, just responding. And, and you had to deal with this. I, I think you were the first press secretary that had to be a reactionary as opposed to proactive and creating a message and here's what we want to go with. What was that like for you? I mean, you talk about it. You talk about waking up and reading what did he tweet last night and what did he tweet this morning. But, but you had to react to the president as opposed to the president reacting to your message that you crafted. Talk about that a little bit. It's a great, it's a great point because I've spent a career, most people who are in my field do the same thing, which is that you're, you're sort of considered the subject matter expert on messaging and media. And therefore you craft a strategy and a message and, you know, the talking points and all that. 
and you bring them up to the principal that you serve and say, okay, boss, here's what I think we should do. Here's how we should do it. Here's when we should do it. And here's what I think we should say about it. And, you know, your boss will tweak or edit or approve it. The difference with Trump and the dynamic that you're talking about is that he drives the train and you, your job is to sort of follow and amplify as opposed to the other way around. And it's, it's, it's a vastly different proposition and dynamic than I've ever seen. And frankly, probably most folks have ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think messaging is so important. And this is, this is what I think for me, at, le- at least, and I think a lot of my listeners as well, Sean, that resonated with President Trump was we kind of hadn't done very well in the messaging department, I think, as, as Republicans, as a GOP. And I think he's kind of changed that because he pushes back, he fights. And, and let me give you one example. You talk about in your book, and this is something, uh, I come from a boat building background as well, and I remember the luxury tax. And I remember what that did to the economy and the real effect it had on the American people because it was supposed to be this punishment tax against super rich people, and we hear that all the time from the left. But in this case... Why don't more people talk about what you talked about in your book where you talk about the production of yachts and the fact that it destroyed jobs for hundreds of thousands of Americans across this country? It didn't hurt the rich people. It hurt the working Americans. And I think that kind of messaging is so powerful when we talk about taxes and tax reform and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? I I couldn't agree more. I mean, look, my dad, you know, you you started this by talking about my dad, who I write about in the book. And. My dad used to tell me all the time, I'm sorry, poor people don't buy boats. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we grew up very working class, and the idea was the more rich people to buy our product, the better, right? Those are the people that buy it. I was a kid working in a boatyard, you know, cleaning bottoms, sanding teak, um, and there were a bunch of people way senior to me that got laid off because, you know, I was making $3.50 an hour, but they were, they were, this was their livelihood to them. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't afford to keep them on when this luxury tax hit the rich. And to your point, I think too often we don't talk about the effect that these policies have specifically on working men and women. And, uh, and, and that's, we get too into the nuances of the math, right? Which is this is gonna do this, or this is gonna do that, versus talking about how many people's, you know, the wages are gonna go up or they're gonna go down. And that's the bottom line for most people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's what resonated, I think, because the, the average person maybe sitting in Michigan who provides the upholster cover for the seats in the yacht, you know, whatever it is, these people are intimately impacted by this. Let me get into another one, because this is another thing with messaging that I think, uh, especially under George W. Bush, was a, was a big messaging point. And this was Guantanamo Bay. A lot of people may not know, Sean, you're, you're a veteran of the Navy yourself, and you had an opportunity to go to Guantanamo Bay. Now, you had heard all the messages messaging and this was all my, I mean, this is just a horrible, horrible place. Tell us what was your real experience when you went to Guantanamo Bay? You know, it's interesting. So we went down, the command that I was uh, overseeing was responsible for the investigations of all these detainees. So I had a chance to go down there and it was fascinating to watch the conditions that these guys lived in. Remember they're accused of being some pretty bad folks. And yet They've got a you know massive D, and this is whatever eight years ago now that I was last there, but they had a massive DVD collection. They had amazing healthcare, soccer fields, you know, big screen televisions with all sorts of media available to them. I, I was thinking to myself, if I was ever incarcerated, and I hope to God I never am, you know, that's not a bad place to be. They had an outdoor area. It was it it was interesting that you know to your point that more folks. And it wasn't that they didn't bring the media down. They did. It was sort of that it ran counter to a narrative that I think a lot of people wanted to push. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this a little bit because you were the one who had to stand there and field all these questions from uh, what, what I would almost classify now as a rabid uh, White House press corps. I think I think it's just so out of control. And for the Amer- average American who watches this, I think we see this. It seems kind of insane. Talk a little bit about this because you had to stand there and get shouted at and get all these things. Now it's part of the job, and you've got to you know you've got to do your thing. But what, what, in your opinion, you've watched this for a long time, as I have, what is your opinion today of what this is like and what this media fervor is right now? And I don't think this ends well, Sean. What is your take on how much things have changed in your lifetime? Well, I think over my lifetime, tremendously, right? I started getting in and, and you know, you, there was no, you didn't use email. Um, and it was, you know, phones and delivering press releases by hand. So the entire industry has changed, but I think in the last two and a half years, it's changed probably more than it did for the previous 10 in terms of the way the press is now, it's about them. You know, you've got these guys who basically, you know, want to become YouTube stars, go into the briefing room, make a bunch of antics and stuff. And and I think that the dynamic, especially because of social media and especially because of Twitter specifically, has really changed um how the media covers folks. They, they have truly lost all sense of objectivity. And it's amazing that there's no, I, I just, I can't believe there's not more of, a, of an outcry um, by, by what I would call good journalists that say, you know, this isn't who we are. We don't want, you know, this kind of um, coverage, if you will. I, I just, I, if I were a journalist and I thought to myself, I don't necessarily agree or want some of these, um, some of these, you know, bad actors, bad, bad narratives, you know, bad behavior, undermining a profession that I love and care about. I, that's where I get, I still am fascinated by that, Adam, that, that these guys all sort of stick to each, stick with each other, stick up to the lowest common denominator, no matter how bad that person is. You know, it's just, yeah, I don't know that there's another, there's not another industry that I can name. You know, if in radio, if, it, if there was a host in radio that was just treating their listeners and berating them and saying social nets, you know, my guess is that you'd probably make a comment on it and say, I just want you to know, as someone who's been a you know, long time doing this, I don't condone that kind of behavior, and that's not how you treat listeners, and blah, blah. I mean, everybody in a profession sticks up to the profession that they care about, except for these reporters. It's amazing to me. And that is an amazing point, and I want to get a little deeper into that because this is something that for, I, I'm just like you. I cannot believe that more within this industry are not standing up. So let me just be real specific here. Jim Acosta, you, he stands up, so it's somebody else's turn. So he's already had his questions. It's somebody else's turn. One of his colleagues, and he's shouting. He's not just shouting down you or Sarah or the president. He's shouting down his own colleagues. And, and yeah, Sean, yeah, that- nobody says anything. No, no, that is, you just put your finger on the problem, which is, it is blatantly rude and unprofessional what he does to his fellow colleagues. You're absolutely right. This isn't about me. It's not about Sarah or the president. There are so many colleagues, especially his female colleagues, that he shouts over. He demands a question and an answer when he deems it necessary. I I am sort of taken back by the lack of other reporters saying, hey, you're rude. This is inappropriate and unprofessional. Absolutely. It's astonishing to me. Sean, this is an amazing book. Uh, you're gonna, I know you're out on the road. You've got a lot of stuff going on. Again, you're getting a little bit of a break today, and I, and I think that's great for you and your family. Tell, us, tell my listeners, where's the best place for them to go to get your book? 
Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I mean, if you want to get the briefing, obviously the easiest place for most is Amazon.com. It's at BarnesandNoble.com, Books a Million. It's at most major bookstores. I know Barnes and Noble's been doing gangbusters. There's autographed ones available at BarnesandNoble.com. Um, you know, and so I appreciate if, if people, you know, it's, there's some, obviously you mentioned some of the great personal pieces in this book. But I also had the opportunity to really go through not just the, the White House, but the campaign and the transition and really kind of give what I think is some behind the scenes uh, of what was going on at some of these crucial moments. Absolutely. And, and if you don't mind, I've got to ask one last closing question. I hope you've got a second here for this, because I think this is so important and people really need to read this in the book, the briefing. But I want you just to give me a quick one on this, because people don't know, they don't realize, I think, the state of the GOP. When you and Reince Priebus came in, you took over a pretty bad situation when it came to the, so the RNC. You took over a pretty bad situation there, and you were able to build that up. Without that, I don't believe there is a President Trump, because I don't believe the apparatus would have been there to support a full presidential campaign. Just real quick, talk, give us the insight on that. Yeah, I, I, I probably would agree with you on that. And I think to, to steal a Hillary Clinton phrase, we were dead broke. We were $25 million in debt. Uh, but, but from 2012 onward, we spent $175 million building out a data and, and field operation. We could put people in, the, in key battleground states 365 days a year, but more importantly, really build out the data so that on all 190 million voters throughout this country, we started to build a profile on them as to when they voted, how they voted, what were their key influencers, what issues mattered to them, what would make them vote Republican or Democrat, and that we could identify the places and people that the president needed to target, where he should, could spend his time best. I mean, we really leveraged that data in a way that I think um, made sure that the message that the president was sending resonated with the most number of people in the most effective way. Yeah, I could not agree more. The apparatus wouldn't have been there. Sean Spicer, thanks for everything you did for this administration, for this country, uh, your service to the Navy, and for this great book, The Briefing. It was a real pleasure and a real honor for me to get to sit down and talk with you. You have a great weekend. Get back out there and sell some books. I will. Thank you for having me. All right. That was my sit down with Sean Spicer. And just the incredible part of this is... What we see with the with the Jim Acosta's, I thought for me that was the a really interesting point for me in that interview was was talking about what it's like to be there. And you know, you've got somebody who's think, look at the Jim Acosta guy. I mean, this guy's just a complete bully, right? He bullies women. So they, these are the people that lecture us about toxic masculinity, but he's not toxically masculine, right? I mean, when he's shouting down women, and he, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And uh, I think it's incredible where we've come to here. And I think this is. This is the point. This is why they hate President Trump. This is the Trump effect. You heard that we played that Mika Brzezinski clip, right, where it's our job to control what people think. See, no, it isn't, because we can go to President Trump's Twitter feed, right? right? We can hear straight from him. He answers questions. Uh, last week when he was getting ready to leave for for the trip to Great Britain, which I thought he did an absolutely amazing job. And I had to actually go back and watch the Obama clip, right? Did you see that one, right, where he's doing the state dinner and he's doing the toast to the queen? Oh, my God. One of the most embarrassing moments ever in the international stage. But nobody talked about it. Instead, they talked about Trump and they said, oh, this was a horrible disgrace. Oh, it was terrible. No, it wasn't. He did a great job. Did, did the queen, did she not look like she actually genuinely liked this guy? I think she kind of did. Yeah, well, anyway, so, yeah, but you, you look at how this all plays out. When it comes to the media, we can go and we can, we can 
read his tweet. He tells us what he's thinking. He tells the reporters. He takes every question. He'll stand there on the lawn for an hour answering questions. And it's just uh, the last president. What was his big thing? What was the big? Uh, well, okay. Well, let me be clear. Oh, let me be clear. That was his big thing. But but his second big thing was he was the most transparent administration in history. No, he wasn't. He was massively secretive. Remember when they did the uh, the logs, right? The White House logs. Because if you go meet the president at the White House, you've got to sign the log, the guest book, whatever. And so he said, well. We're going to make these available to everyone, not like the last administration that, that kept it hidden who was here. What they did was they had everybody go to a coffee shop. So instead of coming to the White House, just go to the coffee shop because then we don't have to put your name in the book. And then remember this? I mean, that was his big campaign promise was everybody will know who's coming in because this is the people's. You know, the coffee shop is now the people's house, the one that they don't have to sign in and you don't have to release that they were there. Right. Yeah. So it was not only not the most transparent administration in history. It was one of the most secretive. Yeah, little news flash there. We will be right back with my interview with Victor Davis Hanson right after this. Have you ever been frustrated when you go to the doctor and are asked to fill out forms over and over again? And you're asked for information that you don't remember, or you have to submit the same form to multiple organizations. And each time you are asked to fill out the same form by hand. What about filling out business or legal forms, all manually? Maybe you've spent a lot of time filling out a form, made sure that everything is correct, and oops, the person who re-entered the data into the computer system made several mistakes. Why couldn't you do it from home in advance, where you could find all of the necessary documents? Now you can at formateer.com. The next time you need a form filled out, the information can be found right at your fingertips. If you're an individual, you may find some forms ready to use on Formateer.com, or we may be able to create a custom form for you at a very low cost or no cost at all. If you're a small business, Formateer.com will be happy to create a set of forms or a complete data entry solution for your business needs. If you're a business that provides software, IT solutions, or both to another business, Formateer.com has a great solution for you as well. Our parent company, RenderX, provides software and solutions to a very diversified group, from individuals to Fortune 500 companies. Even the United States government budget is formatted with RenderX software. With Formateer.com, customers can fill out forms from their homes in advance when and where they have all the required information, or they can edit information that has changed if they filled out the form previously. No writing for them, no data re-entry for you. Form-filling solutions for businesses or individuals at Formateer.com. That's Formateer.com. Is it time to expand and open offices in Sao Paulo and London? A long-term lease will be like a short, tight noose. And furnishing those will be as much fun as a tax audit. You guys always give me such great negative feedback. Fear and doubt holding you back? Now there's a new way to work to minimize risk. With Regis, you get fully equipped offices without a long-term lease, a receptionist, conference rooms, and over 1,100 locations around the world. Regis is the new way to work. Call now and get two months free.
Been looking for an online gathering place? You know, a familiar screen does everything you're used to, except give you grief for being a conservative? you got to try the Tea Party community. At TPC, you'll know how everything works from the very first minute, and you'll probably find a lot of friends who are already there. Organize, communicate, share ideas, upcoming events, pictures, and videos. The Tea Party community connects and empowers like-minded, politically conservative people. Like you, sign up today at teapartycommunity.com. Wouldn't it be nice if there was an easier, less expensive option than a traditional lawyer? At LegalZoom, you get personalized services for your family and your business that's 100% guaranteed. So go to LegalZoom.com today for personalized, affordable legal protection. Are you among the 64% of Americans who believe our country is going in the wrong direction? If yes, then eVoiceAmerica.com is the political take-action site we've all been waiting for. And it's really free. eVoice America provides your personal list of elected reps every time you log on. This makes it so easy to email your opinions and e-votes on top issues directly to each of our D.C. elected representatives. eVoice then publishes our e-vote majority percentages on top issues to each member of Congress and the media. Now, for the first time in history, we can know what millions of American citizens are telling Congress. No more gridlock. Join the new American majority using eVoiceAmerica.com, putting Americans in control of Congress. Visit eVoiceAmerica.com today. It's free and easy to use. That's eVoiceAmerica.com. Hey, this is Ted Nugent. I'm on the Don Smith Radio Show, where it's okay to be a real conservative. Not long ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with Victor Davis Hanson, military historian, uh, really smart guy. And this is the other side of it. So we just played the Sean Spicer uh, interview where he talked about the messaging. And this is the thing. He does not allow the media to control that messaging. He, he does not allow them to filter what he says. We, we read the various headlines on this uh, Mexico deal, uh, which is an amazing accomplishment. He made a threat to him. They couldn't get somebody on a plane quick enough to get him to this country to make a deal. So this is what he does. So it's that part of it. It's the messaging, but it's also the accomplishments. You've got to understand that if he wasn't really doing things, if he wasn't really keeping campaign promises, well, they wouldn't have such a big problem. They'd still, they'd still have TDS and they'd still be a little insane because they just love Hillary. But here's the thing. He's got actual accomplishments, and I think that's a really important factor here. And Victor Davis Hanson, I think, did a great job explaining that in this interview. What is my pleasure to have my next guest on the program. He is an award-winning historian, also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he is also the author of the great new book, The Case for Trump. Very few books go on my must-read list, but this is one of them. Victor Davis Hanson, welcome to the Don Smith Show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure, and I, and I think this book is 
here's what I really like about it. You, you take this on, uh, no holds barred, you go right at it, and uh, no soft soap in here. Give, give my listeners an idea. What was the motivation behind the case for Trump? Well, I looked at the uh, field of books, and they seemed to be either train, uh, to portray Trump as a saint or a sinner and not to analyze him in a historical context. And then I dedicated it to the deplorables on the idea that a lot of people had an instinct that he would not only be nominated but elected and that he would have a successful first two years. And I wanted to explain why they were probably right about that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think it was a, a no holds barred. And that's what I really enjoyed the most about it. Talk about this, because I think this is one of the things that's it kind of fascinated me as somebody who's a bit, a bit of a political wonk myself. The two Americas, I mean, you start the book right off. And I think this is a great place to start because there's a lot of talk about President Trump. He's divided the country and he's you talk about the fact that he inherited this. And I could not agree more. But talk about the two Americas. Well, I think what happened was globalization did wonders for the 7 billion people on the planet, but here in the United States, it was asymmetrical in its benefits and its punishments, so that anybody who was in the media or finance or high-tech had a sudden 7 billion person audience, but anybody who relied on muscular labor found his job outsourced or Xeroxed or offshore, and then Weirder still, people almost reverse cause and effect. They said, well, you should learn coding or it's your fault. You want opiates or whatever the faulty reasoning was. Nobody said until Trump, China is not fated to take over the world. Asymmetrical trade is not fair. Um, an open border and NAFTA and a globalized attitude doesn't promote entry-level wages. And going all over the world and engaging in optional military engagements that don't result in strategic advantage, don't pencil out. And that particular message was especially germane to people that the Republican Party thought they just couldn't win anymore in key swing states like um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Ohio, Indiana. And yet mm -hmm. a person with no previous military or political experience was the only one who seemed to grasp that. And then grasped yeah. it again and drove it home in the general election. Yeah, he certainly did that. And let me ask you this, because I think this is part of it, too. There's a big discussion that's going on right now, and it's been going on since actually he entered the race, since he came down the escalator. And this is about being presidential. I, I always have to wonder, as a conservative, so I, I like the fact that he hits back sometimes a um, little crudely and uh, wish he would maybe do it <laughs> in different ways. But I appreciate the fact that he punches back. Let's talk about this, the term presidential. We had eight years before this of uh, former President Barack Obama, who, in, in my opinion, insulted conservatives on a daily basis, whether it was flat earth society, waving tea bags around. Uh, some of the comments that he made, I didn't find very presidential. Talk about this, because this is something you really address throughout the book, is the, the term presidential and, and what it means to be a, a modern-day presidential, if you will. Well, I mean, we have historical amnesia. Uh, going back to FDR, presidents did some pretty crazy things. He, FDR arranged an affair with his mistress through the agency of his own daughter while he was in the White House. I don't need to get into what mm -hmm. AFK or Bill Clinton did, but 
Obama used a really a homophobic slur when he called the Tea Party teabaggers and get get in their faces. And so this new standard, I understand that Trump, Trump and as I said in the book, can be crude and crass, but when you have 90% of press coverage, according to the Shore Instance Center, negative, and that includes everything from the Washington Post to the New York Times to PBS, NPR, cable stations and major networks, in addition to Hollywood, entertainment, universities, foundations, high-tech, Silicon Valley, in addition to sort of a, I don't know what we would call it, a slow-motion coup, the 25th Amendment appeal, the emoluments clause, suing the, over the voting machines, uh, the Mueller investigation, the Logan Act, uh, Rod Rosenstein and McCabe sort of talking about removing the president, their own president. So when you have that le- level of opposition and you're not being reported on fairly, then he takes to Twitter where he's got 65 million followers and then other social media up to 100 million. And we all wish that he wouldn't get in these cul-de-sac fights or John McCain or George Conway, but there's two things to remember, that he's human. So that level of vituperation we've never seen before. When Obama encountered it, uh, a clown, for example, the Missouri State Fair wore a Obama mask. He got furious. They banned the clown, clown for life from appearing in a rodeo. So they were very intolerant. He couldn't stand Fox News. You know, he'd say, uh, you can tear Sean Hannity up. He told a questioner that. So I think we don't realize the effect of that level of opposition among somebody. And then, two, every including myself, who has advocated that he cut back at it, has kind of been proven wrong because he gets to the quick. He, he's retaliatory. He's not preemptory. So he usually waits till somebody attacks him. This Conway has been attacking him for two years, and he didn't reply. Meghan McCain started his second round of McCain-Trump feuding when she said some pretty terrible things about him. And he overreacts, but he creates, he thinks, deterrence. I don't know if he needs to do it to the same degree that he did in 2016 because now he has a superb record of economic growth and foreign policy achievements, and he will be running against some pretty strange and scary people that have a menu of issues, none of which um, poll 51%, whether it's reparations or New Green Deal or open borders or wealth tax or 90% income tax rate or abolishing ICE or Medicare for everybody, I could go on, but those are not winning issues. And yet Trump is probably going to run against those and say, here's my four years of achievement. This is what they want to do. I think I'm the only guy between you and socialism. That's a pretty powerful argument. Yeah, it really is. You know, and you talk about this. You talk about the the effect, the impact of social media. And this is a question that comes from one of my listeners, uh, who is also a one of the leading members of a great organization, veterans organization called Special Operations Speaks. And David Miller wants to know what, in your thoughts, wh- where do you think social media will be as we approach 2020 when it comes to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Will this be even more impactful? You think this election than even in 2016? I think it will be because it's not just going to be on commentary, as we saw here in California with vote harvesting. Social media is going to be used to register and turn out the vote and even more nefarious things, the harvest votes from people who probably are not 
qualified in a sense, legally qualified. And we're going to have a push on the part of the, the progressive movement to get ex-felons to vote in some states to lower the voting age in some that they can get away with it. So social media, we already know, is primarily a progressive outlet. And I think they feel that any means necessary to stop Donald Trump or will be justified by that noble end. And so I I think the Trump campaign is going to have to get really geared up to use social media, uh, not just to get people to vote for him, but to get his people out registered and to vote. That's going to be where the battlefield is, registration and get out the vote on what. Yep, yep, well said. I couldn't agree more with that. Let me ask you this, because one of the things that's going on is we talk a lot about uh, whether he's presidential, whether he's tweets, this, and, and you mentioned the John McCain, the, the Conway thing, and I agree with you on that. Let me ask you this, because there are a list of accomplishments, and this is one of the things that I, I liked in your book was that, that you, you, you understand these things and you actually point these out here. This guy's got a pretty good list of accomplishments, in my opinion, and I think your book kind of backs that up. Talk a little bit about that, why the conversation seems to want to be more focused around his personality and his tweets and all these kind of things and not so much at all on his actual accomplishments. Well, I think part of it is at least that prior presidents with more traditional credentials – didn't get 3% economic growth. They didn't increase oil production by 3 3 million barrels in just two years. They couldn't get Anwar open. They couldn't get Keystone going or green-lighted. They they signed on the Iran deal. They signed on the Paris Climate Accord. They couldn't get record minority unemployment. So Trump comes along and does this, and then the question becomes, well, if they're better credentialed and they couldn't do it, maybe we have the wrong sort of credentials. And if we have the wrong sort of credentials, maybe you people are not deserving of the prestige and influence that you exercise. Mm-hmm. And then maybe an outsider from now on might be better. And so mm-hmm. that's one thing. And the other thing is Trump redefines presidential morality. He says getting a person a job who didn't have one and having employers seek him out and having leverage over employers rather than waiting in line to a boss call, that's a moral act. That's, that empowers people. Uh, I may not be Jimmy Carter or Jerry Ford with my language and comportment, but I've done a lot more than they have, and people like them, to get people economic opportunity. And I don't yep. think the left or the Never Trump writers figure that out yet. Well, let me ask you this, because let me dig it a little deeper into that. <laughs> Do you think this changes the the whole structure, the whole uh, process of our elections? Because I've always personally thought that it would be great to have a business person, an actual business person, somebody who's at least run a lemonade stand. This guy's done a lot more than that. Do you think this changes the whole landscape going forward as far as it's got to be a politician? I remember, I remember Barack Obama, people were saying, well, he really didn't do much as a state senator and uh, he didn't have a lot of experience. But this guy had none. So do you think this changes things going forward for our country when we look at presidential candidates? Well, I'm not sure that the last presidents, either by their comportment or their success, um, have warranted um, any praise for their administrations, whether it's Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or George W. Bush, and yet they were all products of the Ivy League. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think 
that's why Howard Schultz is in the running. That's why Michael Bloomberg considered to run. And mm-hmm. when you look at the Democratic candidates, uh, you see a few of them that are getting in that may not have traditional backgrounds. But I don't think the public says anymore, I'm going to vote for that person because he went to Yale Law School. Because Yale Law School is so wise and knowing that anybody can, and it's so hard to get into. There's been so many scandals about the Ivy League and elite universities, how they sell admittances and they discriminate on race, that people just don't have any confidence in that traditional background for a president. So it's like Harry Truman, after you know, who only went one semester to business school, and he was blunt and he was uncouth, but he he saved South Korea. He integrated the armed forces. He created CIA. He recognized Israel all against the the judgment and opinion of so-called experts in the State Department. Absolutely. Yeah, I could not agree more. I got last question here. I uh, want people to read this book, as I mentioned. I think this is on my must-read list, and uh, very few books are on there. But I want to mention there's another book of yours that is also. It's called The Second World Wars. Anybody, if you have not read this and you're as fascinated as I am about uh, the Second World War, you definitely want to check this out. But Victor Davis Hanson, where can my listeners go to get the case for Trump? Uh, you can go to my website, victorhanson.com, or Amazon, or Barnes & Noble, or any major bookstore. Excellent. Excellent book. Uh, love it. I think, again, I think you, you pulled no punches on this. You told it like it is, and, and that's what I respect the most about your writing. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I'd love to have you back again in the future. Thank you for having me. Victor Davis Hanson, uh, great book, and uh, really great to have him on the program. So you've got two reasons here that they all hate him. Two reasons that they hate him at this level. Number one is the messaging. Number two is the accomplishments. He's doing stuff. Who remembers a president in your lifetime who actually did what they said they were going to do? I mean, just take one example is moving the embassy in Israel, right? I mean, every single president had promised that. This guy comes in and does it. And everybody freaks out. They go, oh, my God, I can't believe he's actually doing it. What did you believe when the other ones promised it? So, yeah, I think if this guy's not accomplishing anything, um, it's not as big a deal. They're still going to hate him. I mean, they're going to hate him just for beating Hillary because it wasn't supposed to happen. They were all uh, lulled into a full sense of security, if you will, that they thought, well, for sure Hillary's going to win. How could she possibly not win? She's been doing this for 30 years. (laughs) Yeah, we saw how that worked out. But this is the thing. Let me give you one more example. Because so here this week, he's, he goes to uh, all these festivities. He's at the D-Day, uh, the Normandy landing, uh, the remembrance of that 75 years, which is just an amazing. He did an amazing job in that speech, and it killed him. It killed him because they were like, oh, they wanted him to be the big buffoon, and uh, they were just waiting for him. They tried to make a big deal at one point. I saw the stories where... He touched, he may have touched the queen's back. Oh, <laughs> folks, this is what they've got. He may have touched the queen's back. This is so incredibly pathetic at this point, right? Do you know how many people, you know how many people in these flyover states are watching this going, oh, man, you know, I like Joe Biden, but mm, this is just crazy. Because they get it. They're working. They're manufacturing things again. Their wages are growing. Hmm. 
wow, it's kind of good for me. So maybe I don't want to go back to Joe Biden, who's going to destroy everything, shut my job down. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I don't want to support somebody like Michael Bloomberg, who literally wants to destroy my job. I, yeah, and again, it was the same thing with Hillary when she told the coal miner, yeah, I'm going to take your job away. But here's what it really comes down to. So in this interview, so he interviews with Laura Ingram, and if you heard it, great interview. But he's asked about Nancy Pelosi, who's over there. She's talking about she wants him in jail. She wants Nancy Pelosi said she wants to see him in jail. See, the problem is the president's too busy. So I don't think he's going to have time to drop by and see you in jail. I don't think he'll be able to visit you. But anyway, good luck with that, Nancy. So he's asked about Nancy Pelosi. And now a typical politician. Okay, just just. Picture John McCain, right, getting asked that question. What do you think about Speaker Nancy Pelosi? You say, John McCain would have slobbered all over her. He would have, oh, she's a wonderful person. And he would have given her credit for things that Republicans did, just just to appease her and to sound statesmanlike. He's presidential, right? And he would, oh, I just think she's a beautiful human being. But no, no, no. This is Donald Trump. We passed Nancy Pelosi as we were walking up to the stage earlier. Um, she said some pretty harsh things over the last 24 hours, leaked out from her caucus. She said, I don't want impeachment, I want him in prison, meaning you. How do you work with someone like that? I think she's a disgrace. Uh, I, I actually don't think she's a talented person. Uh, I've tried to be nice to her because I would have liked to have gotten some deals done. She's incapable of doing deals. She's a nasty, vindictive, horrible person. The Mueller report came out. It was a disaster for them. They thought their good friend Bobby Mueller was going to give him a great report. <laughs> How can you not love that? How can you not love the honesty? Is there a single thing in that description that was wrong, that was factually wrong? Now, you can go to Snopes.com and they'll tell you, is, they'll, they'll actually have something on there. Is Nancy Pelosi really a nasty person? No, we found out that that's mostly not true. <laughs> This is the extreme we're at right now. But again, somebody like McCain or Romney or any of them, George Bush, they would have slobbered all over her. Remember, we could have right now. Well, no, we couldn't. Have, but we were told that we could have Jeb Bush, please clap, as our president. Can you imagine Jeb Bush answering that question? Well, I think Nancy Pelosi. And they would have gone through a whole list of accomplishments and why she's a beautiful human being. No, she's not. She's insane. She's a nasty whack job, just like the president said. This is why we love him. So sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but I sit there and I go, ooh, ooh, he shouldn't have said that. But then like 30 minutes later, I'm like, yeah, all right. That guy's all right. Because that's what people want to hear. They want to hear honesty. Not a bunch of political doublespeak. Like I said, all the issuing a position paper on. No, no, they don't want to hear that. They want to hear somebody say, yeah, that's, that's horrible. This is a horrible deal. With Mexico, yeah, he threatened to put tariffs on them. Did they, did they go, well, hell, go ahead because that's going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me? No, that's what the media said. Mexico couldn't get here fast enough to sit down and make a deal, which they've done. It's not that Trump claims there's a deal, as the USA reported. It's that he made a deal. Yeah, and that's something. So this is where we're at. We've got a president who's going to speak his mind. He's not worried about the individual. See, okay, the question about Pelosi. The reason that Bush, 
McCain, Romney, the, all those people would have went, oh, I think she's a wonderful girl. Because they wouldn't want to offend anybody. And We don't live in that society anymore, folks. Go on Twitter. Does it look like people are worried about being offended? See, I don't really think it does. So as a society, we've changed. Is it a good change? Mm, no, maybe not. Maybe it was better when things were a little more civilized. But this guy is a different politician who is living in the structure, our, our societal structure that we have today. Not what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, today. This is the structure, and he, he excels at it. That's the bottom line. This guy excels at it. Well, I want to thank uh, Richard Barris, of course, for being on the program live. Uh, of course, he is the editor of peoplespundadaily.com. Uh, great to sit down and talk with Sean Spicer as well as Victor Davis Hanson. But more importantly, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Be back here next Saturday at noon Eastern time for a brand new Don Smith show. Hey, everybody, it's okay to be a conservative and have a great weekend. Fight the good fight, everybody.